asked to give a general introduction to ethics in 20 minutes, so you'll understand that this is, I've worked out it's about a minute a century, if you think about the, the, the two or three thousand years in which a lot of us have been thinking about ethics. So it's quite truncated, and I've also taken it as a chance to put in some of the things that I'm particularly interested in, and to select out some of the, some, some things from a int general introduction to ethics that occur to me might be particularly relevant when you're thinking about the ethics of reputation, which I know is a concern of you guys today. First of all, really, ethics is very easy because there's only two problems. We just have to work out what to do, which is something that philosophers have been concerned with and people producing codes of business ethics and codes of principles and codes of medical ethics and so on are concerned about. But secondly, we also have to actually do it. And that's a question which I put in there because I think it's sometimes slightly neglected when we're looking at applied ethics. Uh, and it's something that philosophers have concerned themselves with in moral philosophy, but also in philosophy of mind and philosophy of action. And it's also something that psychologists have concerned themselves with and sociologists. One of the things that I think it's worth saying to clear out of the way at the beginning is that people like me quite often get asked to come along and do a bit of ethics, and after a while you get a sinking feeling that people think, oh, we better do some ethics, really, because it would look good, and that doing ethics is about, oh, we've done the ethics, it's all right, we've done the ethics, we've done the ethics, we're okay, we've done the ethics. Is this a good approach? No. It carries a number of, it carries a number of dangers. It's actually a very dangerous idea. It's not just a lazy idea, it's an idea that can actually be dangerous because it can lull you into thinking that the ethics is done and dusted and actually can lead you astray. Um, it's actually quite um, salutary to recall when we think about, in a different sphere, not business ethics, but medical ethics, for terrible abuses of medical so-called experimentation that were carried out by Nazi doctors those experiments which were actually historically uh, important in, in producing international codes of ethics. Well, at the time, doctors trained in Germany were amongst the few doctors in the world who were actually trained in medical ethics. So, I haven't got time to go into that in much detail, but it's quite salutary to remember that, that they were some of the few doctors who had actually got medical ethics training. It's also important that we mustn't think of ethics as being like a code or a principle that we can stick up on the wall of our office or a sign in some professional code because, well, for many reasons. One reason being that notions of ethics might not apply adequately to new circumstances. You apply a set of principles and then something new comes up that doesn't fit. So we're going to need to fit, think proactively about how our rules fit the circumstances. And secondly, being ethical isn't simply a matter of following certain rules. There's a sense that's perhaps a little bit difficult to articulate, in which the rules have got to be internalised, they've got to be our rules. We're not just simply following a set of principles for the sake of it, although exactly how that's characterised is open to great debate. So, I'm just going to introduce you very briefly to some of the philosophical questions that are asked about ethics. We ask questions about what's the nature of moral judgments. We ask questions about moral epistemology, which is simply just a way of asking questions about how can we have moral knowledge? How do we know what to do? How do we arrive at correct moral judgments? We can ask questions about moral motivation. Why should we act morally? Why should we act in any way other than simple self-interest? 
and two rather tricky problems for ethics, which we need to think of as well, and which is why I put in the initial question about moral motivation. A lot of philosophers have concerned themselves with two particular questions, question of weakness of will and a question of self-deception. Weakness of will is something that we need to bear in mind because quite often you can know exactly what you ought to do, but strangely enough, you just don't do it. Secondly, self-deception, something I'm particularly interested in, I wrote my doctoral thesis on it actually. Self-deception is a very, very, very common phenomena and it can act in mild or serious ways and it can lead us to think that what we're doing is absolutely fine. We've twisted it to fit our self-interest, but really it's perhaps not all that fine. What makes the question a moral issue? In a sense, this is asking what's the nature of moral judgments. And again, uh, today, I can't possibly give you a full answer to this. And philosophers, of course, if you have guessed, disagree about this. What I, what I did is actually, I understand that you were giving an, an editorial to a Journal of Business Ethics by um, Anne, um, not the name, Anne Ten Brunsell's editorial. I went through the editorial and just picked out some key ideas which actually uh, helped to shape some of the major issues about what makes a question a moral issue. So some common concerns from the editorial. But ethical questions are concerned with the vulnerable, the impoverished, those who have less, those who may have less power or less materially or less say in society. Ethical questions are concerned with some notion of the common good. There's some notion of universal application. And that's where philosophers are going to disagree some think that ethics has got to apply absolutely universally in all circumstances. At the very minimum, it got to, it's got to go beyond self-interest. And also, at the minimum, it's got to go beyond simply concern for your, own, for your own immediate group. If you're only concerned with other people who've been to Eton, or whatever your social group is, that wouldn't really, be, uh, that wouldn't really count as, 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 as ethics. So minimally, most people would say it applies to all human beings or to all persons. Some, some ethical philosophers, of course, also think that it applies to concern for animals and the material and, and, and to the, the biological organisms. You're concerned with notions of justice, with what's fair or unfair, with notions of exploitation. And also, a lot of the papers are concerned in this, a lot of the issues that were discussed in this editorial, which is typical, concerned with consequences. Often we're looking at ethical questions when we're saying, oh, you're already thinking about the short term, what about the long term? What about the consequences of your actions, how they might affect other people? Um, and also, ethical questions must have some kind of high value in relation to other values that we have. Again, this is something on which moral philosophers will disagree. Some will consider that an ethical question was the overriding concern, but you can't say, oh, this looks pretty, so I'll have that instead. Um, the ethical questions have got to be the most important considerations, whereas others consider that we have a number of values, um, uh, pragmatic values, values of aesthetics, other sorts of values, and ethical values might sometimes have to take second place to those, but it's certainly the case that an ethical value is something that's of pretty weighty concern. Now, because I'm trying to encapsulate a lot of stuff about philosophical ethics in a very short space of time, I thought it would be... Um, memorable and fun to look at a little quick scenario, uh, a simple picture, a simple model of behaviour to see what's missing in it, to see what else we need to add to get to an account of what ethics involves. So I'm considered this particular scenario, 
ethics in the world of microbes, which I've picked, I, you probably will be able to guess, I've also picked this partly because of looking at business ethics, because these microbes are simply trying to earn their own living. And I, was, I find it interesting to compare two different sorts of microbes, the Ebola virus and the herpes virus. Now, the Ebola virus kills you very quickly. It's a really nasty virus. It can kill you within hours. But precisely because it does that, it's not actually very successful. It kills its host so fast that outbreaks are usually isolated and don't spread very far. They're over very, very quickly and kill nearly everybody there, but many don't spread. Now, the herpes virus is actually very, very successful, partly because it tends not to kill its hosts, and if it does, it kills them very slowly which is actually a much, much better business strategy. And the, and the herpes virus doesn't look very nice, but compared to Ebola, looks like a much nicer chap and looks much more like the sort of chap you might want to do business with. But morally, it's a rather dubious strategy since it's still operating entirely on what you might call self-interest. I mean, I hesitate to call it self-interest because I hesitate to say that the virus has got a conception of herself. But I thought this is an interesting way to see what do we have to build into this to get some kind of ethical behaviour. What we have to build in is that we're not just interested in how people behave, we're interested in why they behave, the reasons for their behaviour. This might be captured by looking at motivating reasons which are captured by codes or deontological rules that describe the nature of permissible or obligatory actions. So, for instance, truth-telling, prohibitions on taking life or property. So, for instance, supposing we can easily uh, an, 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 make an analogy with the herpes virus with, say, a heroin dealer who decides it's bad business to put a whole load of pure heroin out on the market because people will overdose and he'll lose his clients, and that's bad business. So he makes sure the heroin is cut with something that's not toxic so that the, the drug users don't overdose. Well, that's a good business strategy, but it hardly counts as ethical behaviour. If it was actually the case that a business person thought it was actually wrong to really go around killing your clients, then that might get to be one step towards being ethical behaviour. So there are various rules, various ways in which we describe and understand our actions, and various ways in which we're motivated, which are going to get us towards having a, a, a set of ethical principles, ethical guidance. Um, the reasons for why we act may also be captured by ideas about the character of a good moral person. So we might have notions of the virtues that we wish to encourage. The list of three virtues here I've put up simply because these virtues were all mentioned in the editorial from the Journal of Business Ethics. Independence, experience, diligence. So we might think that these are good things that we need to manifest in a, in, in, in a, a morally righteous character. And actually there's been quite a lot of interest in philosophical ethics in, in recent years, in particular in looking at the notion of character. So I've decided to look a little bit more at ideas about character, partly also because of concern for reputation. We can think of reputation of an individual or a corporation in terms of the character of a corporation. So I just thought, since my job is not here to make your life easy, but to point out difficulties, is to point to a few problems that might come up when looking at the notion of moral character. And again, this is only just a, a flavour of some, some things. The first problem that occurred to me is that there's a danger that if we focus too much on the idea of having a good moral character, it might lead us vulnerable to those who strive to attain the appearance of a good character with concern for reputation over substance. So supposing the herpes virus was worried 
uh, about uh, reputation and decided to give discount on anti-colesaw medication to try to improve their reputation. That's the, that's, that's the kind of little scenario I had in mind. Also, much work in philosophical ethics and in a lot of work in a, that's done in applied ethics focuses, I think, very much on the idea of individuals making judgments, on the idea of individuals deciding what the best thing to do is, and therefore tends to place less emphasis on the social setting. But the social setting can be of supreme importance in deciding what the right thing to do is, and of supreme importance in governing how and when we act. Getting back to those two, um, two concepts I mentioned at the beginning, weakness of will and self-deception. So this is one of the things I'm particularly interested in myself because I think there are great links between these issues in philosophy of mind and a lot of work that's been carried out in psychology. Focus on the character of agents implicitly places the individual as the originator of the action. But this might lead us to overlook powerful forces behind our actions because individuals are often unaware of what motivates them and even individuals of good character may fail to act for the best. So what I'm going to do, I'm just going to very quickly run through, this is where I've used the opportunity to talk about things I'm really interested in, um, a couple of classic experiments in psychology and just pick out a couple of things which are of relevance to the notion of moral motivation and of relevance in particular to the notion of reputation. The Milgram experiments, I should think most people here have heard of them, these were classic experiments carried out in the early 1960s about obedience to authority, where in a nutshell, um, volunteers were told they were taking part in an experiment on learning and memory, where they had to deliver electric shocks to somebody who was trying to learn something. In fact, a stooge who didn't in fact receive electric shocks at levels increasing 15 volts a time up to 450 volts. Different versions of the experiment have been repeated with very, very consistent results in different countries and in different permutations, a majority of participants actually delivered electric shocks up to high or even danger levels, even though the actor was crying out and begging for them to stop. And I really recommend Milgram's book, Obedience to Authority, which has got a really lengthy analysis of this. Now, why have I talked about this? A few lessons. There are many, many lessons to learn from this. The individuals acted out of character in administering the shocks. It's also important that people showed huge lack of self-awareness. Milgram asked many, many people beforehand, what do you think people will do? People have often asked, how did this experiment get through ethics clearance? It got through ethics clearance because nobody thought that people would do it. They thought a few nuts, a few psycho nuts would go through to the end, but everybody else would refuse to do it. But the majority of people went through to the end. So lack of moral self-awareness, that shows alone why we need to do more than just work out what to do. Because we all worked out what to do. What to do was not deliver the shocks, but people did it. Uh, now, Mildrum also talked extensively to people afterwards as to why they'd done it. People suffered huge tensions. They grappled with their consciences for a long time. Some people grappled with their consciences and then stopped. Others just grappled with their consciences all the way through. Many individuals protested to the experimenter and said, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be doing this. Now, Milgram, Milgram's analysis was that when people were protesting, that helped to lower their internal tension. They thought, oh, I'm, such, I'm really quite a good guy because I've put my moral cards on the table. I've told the experimenter we shouldn't be doing this. But in actual fact, what happened was that therefore lowered their internal tension, therefore enabling them to continue to deliver the shocks. In other words, 
why I've mentioned this, we're thinking about reputation, the individuals were salvaging their own internal rep moral reputation. What they thought of themselves was salvaged because they'd, uh, they'd delivered a protest, but their actions weren't affected. In fact, Milgram argues, this enabled them to carry on acting. And also, interestingly, individuals said that they acted because they were concerned with their reputation in the eyes of the experimenter. Some bloke in a grey lab coat they'd only just met. They were so concerned about what he would think of them that this led them to ignore their own conscience and to ignore the cries of the victim. Now, if you, I hope you're interested in this, and some of you might read more about this, but I'm going to quickly go on, because I've got not much time, oh, sorry, to the next really interesting experiment which took place in Stanford in 1971. And again, many of you will have heard of this. This is a famous Stanford prison experiment where a group of carefully screened young men, carefully screened to make sure that they counted as being psychologically normal, were randomly divided into prisoners and guards for what was supposed to be a two-week mock-up of a prison to see how people behaved. The experiment was abandoned after six days because the behaviour of the guards was so massively abusive. They did, for example, they made the prisoners uh, strip and perform mock sexual acts on each other, um, as, uh, amongst other, other abuses. The question is, were these guards who behaved like this, were they just bad apples? Were they bad apples who had just gone a bit amok and used the opportunity to act out their aggressive impulses? Well, again, a few lessons from the Stanford Prison Experiment. There's a very good website about this, actually, and Philip Zimbardo, who ran the experiment, wrote a book, The Lucifer Effect, about this, published only in 2007, and that was partly because it took him 35 years to be able to force himself to look at the implications of it all. Um, the prisoners and guards adopted their role within this fictitious institution very readily. They acted out of their usual character very, very quickly. They were concerned to do their job. They were concerned with what the other guards thought about them. They were concerned. They exceeded the demands of their role massively. The prisoners, interestingly, several prisoners had to be removed early, experienced great stress. Many prisoners asked to be allowed to stay, even though those running the experiment thought they ought to leave because they were so concerned to maintain their reputation with their fellow prisoners as a good prisoner. They wanted to stay in this abusive situation because they wanted their fellow prisoners to think well of them. So concern for reputation with a certain reference group can in fact be a motivation, motivating factor for terrible behaviour and it can be in fact a motivating factor to put up with abuse. Now, this is only a tiny little flavour, but of course you can see why I've, I've, I've introduced this. And in looking at something like the Stanford Prison Experiment, we've got to not just look at what the rules are of behaviour, but how the features of the situation and features of a systemic context can help to overturn moral norms, can distort moral norms and distort moral action. The conclusion of the experiment really is that they're not bad apples. In fact, some of the people who took part in this experiment went on for careers to take on careers in psychology. One of them went on to work, is still working extensively in prison reform. They're not bad apples, it was a bad barrel. So the reason you can see why I've introduced this, because we need to look not just at the behaviour of actions of individuals, but we need to look at institutional and systemic forces that help to shape how we act. So to sum up, two basic ethical problems. We just need to know what to do, and then we just need to do it. Mm -hmm.